Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I am Rob Hunt, coming to you from sunny Southern California in Linnea Holdings. Joined today, again, finally, by our good friend Jim Marty, who's uh, taken the last four or five weeks to gallivant around the country, see a bunch of music, and uh, prepare his clients' tax returns. Jim, how are you doing today? Very good, and it's nice to be back. Yep, I uh, did some personal travel, some business travel, and uh, got a lot of tax returns that are due um, with the extended due date coming right up. So, But it is nice to be back, and looking forward to uh, getting caught up with you and uh, talking to our our fans out there. Fantastic. And uh, very shortly, we should be joined by our, our good buddy, Larry Michigan, as well. But uh, but for now, you know, Jim, why don't you kick it off? I know you were uh, excited to tell everyone about how uh, Fish was at Dick's a few weeks ago uh, for the Labor Day weekend. So we'd love to hear an update about, you know, all that went down there. Oh, it was so fun. I mean, nine hours of fish really satisfies. You know, it's just a uh, wonderful experience. Surprisingly, uh, you, know, so, you know, so many surprising things happened. But one of them was Friday and Saturday, there was plenty of tickets available in the lot. But anyway, yeah, fish was great. Nine hours of fish really satisfies. And, um, you know, so many fun things happened. Um, they were um, wanting proof of vaccination, but they weren't really strict about it. It wasn't a bad line to get, you know, show your vaccination card, get a wristband. But uh, I had a sweatshirt on that covered the wristband and nobody said anything to me. Um, they didn't ask me to show it. Uh, so 29,000 people, three nights in a row. A lot of tickets available Friday and Saturday shows. In fact, my son Jack stopped to get a beer and managed to lose his uh, ticket in the process. And while he was looking for it, and of course he didn't find it, his ticket on the ground, um, his girlfriend got given a free ticket. And so it was her fish, first fish show, and she got miracled. I told her she learned what the word miracle looked like. So we all got in, and um, I mean, Trey was just absolutely blazing. I mean, check out the, the Harry Hood, the third night. Uh, but that was another surprise that after tickets being super easy Friday and Saturday, come Sunday show, there was no tickets anywhere. And we tried and tried. We were short one. And he ended up sitting outside for the three, four hours and listening to the show outside. There was about 100 people in lawn chairs outside of Dick's just sitting there. Third night, I wanted to get home and get some sleep. I was exhausted. So I left her in the encore. Still sounded pretty darn good walking to my car. Uh, during the encore. But uh, first night, we got a triple encore. We got a uh, waste. And uh, then the Grateful, or not the Grateful Dead, the Led Zeppelin, Good Times, Bad Times. And then I forget what the third encore song, oh, Cavern. Uh, So blazing, blazing shows. I mean, Trey's guitar just soared all three nights. And they have a new light rig, which, I mean, just typical fish. The third night, they're still pulling new stuff out of the light show. I was the designated driver uh, Saturday, Sunday, so sober at the shows, and you know when the sound and the lights are really going, it is a psychedelic experience, even if you're not doing psychedelics. It is just amazing. Like the next day, we had a recovery day on Monday up at our house with some, I cooked breakfast for everybody, and boy, every time I laid down on the couch to take a nap, the light show was still going on in my head. It was just a wonderful, wonderful weekend. In fact, our son Jack said, Dad, this is my favorite weekend of the whole year. And I've actually been, this was the 10th year. Um, of course, we no shows last year. So that means I've been to uh, 27 fish shows at Dick's, probably up around 60 shows total. So not bad for an old guy. So what's going on with you two? That's what I've been up to. 
Well, I'll start by saying uh, Gamar Shatima Tova to our good buddy Larry Mishkin. So glad you're able to join us today, Larry. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Jim. Nice to be back. So, uh, Larry, I know you were out for a couple weeks as well, so congratulations on, uh, on the wedding as well. And uh, nice to have the whole team back. It's been uh, really fun for me to actually hold it down for a few weeks without the two founders of the show on here. So hopefully you guys get a chance to, uh, to, to check out some of the things we covered over the last few weeks. But I'm pretty fired up going into the fall right now and thinking about all the stuff we've got going on and everything that's happening in Canvas right now and everything that's happening musically. Uh, I think we're all probably looking at some shows coming up. You know, obviously, I think, Larry, you were at Wrigley, right? Yeah, we've got, uh, well, by the time this airs, it will have been this past weekend, but Friday and Saturday at Wrigley Field. Very excited. Uh, got some buddies who just saw the show in St. Louis the other night. Was getting rave reviews for the set list and the way they were playing and sounding. So, sure, very excited to go out. You know, it's always nice when you have a show. You can just hop on the L, cruise down there, don't have to park, nothing. You're in, you're out. It's very nice. Yeah, and I've got um, I've got Trey Band coming up on Saturday night in Boston, so that should be pretty fun as well. So I think between all of us, we're uh, we're doing okay, guys. Yeah, Dead and Company just added two new shows to Colorado. Oh yeah, where? Red Rocks. Nice. Yes, the nineteenth and twentieth of October, uh, followed by the originally scheduled show at uh, Fiddler's Green. So we'll actually get to see a Grateful Dead show, Dead and Company show back at Red Rocks. Uh, I think we're going to talk about some uh, 1987 shows, which was the Dead's last year at uh, playing at Red Rocks. Uh, we'll catch up with that a little bit later in the show. Um, but yes, and then tomorrow night I go see Phil and Friends. So yeah, lots of good music happening, lots of good stuff going on. You know, people seem to, especially, you know, I think college football and pro football is kind of showing us the way back to large groups of outdoor get-togethers without a lot of serious issues. So, um, yeah, nice to, nice to be back. So which uh, version of, of Phil and Friends is playing that you're going to see? I don't really know. It's going to be kind of a surprise to me. I'm not quite sure who's in the band with him, but he plays in Vale, and then Dylan is a new venue that everyone's saying is just absolutely beautiful, so this will be my first time at that venue. And then Saturday, he plays five miles from my house in Lyons, Colorado. Wow, can't beat that. Yes, unfortunately I can't go because I have a wedding that day. So I got weddinged out too, Larry. That happens too. That's probably about the only thing that would keep me from a show. Pretty much. Wedding or a funeral, I guess, right? Otherwise, uh, it's kind of hard otherwise. But uh, no, that that just sounds great with Phil. I noted that when he uh, is going to do his shows on the East Coast, he's doing three separate three-night runs and changing the group. And of course, the first night he's playing with the quintet with Jimmy Herring and... uh, Warren Haynes and John Molo and Rob Baracco, and I happen to love that group, although the second group, I think, has Larry Campbell and uh, Joe Russo on drums and uh, somebody else who I can't recall off the top of my head, but I think they're going to have uh, some really, really fun groups out there that would be great to head out to uh, to the Capitol Theater. I know we've been focusing a lot on it this year uh, in terms of talking shows and everything, um, but I think I... Uh, you know, notwithstanding everything else, I'm just going to keep my eye on where things are at, given the size of that venue. And quite frankly, I'm curious to find out if Phil is going to walk in there, you know, at 81 or 82 years old and play nine nights in a, you know, in a, in a very, very small, uh, small place. It would be great if he does, but uh, I'm waiting to see. Yes, I'm looking forward to seeing how Phil's doing. It's been a couple of years since I've seen Phil and Friends. I have actually a, a f- kind of a fun Phil and Friends story of a few years ago when he was playing at Red Rocks. And... Uh, they actually let us in during the sound check. 
And there's Phil up there with his, I forget who was in the band with him that, that particular night, but there's Phil with just a white t-shirt on. We're sitting and sat down in the front row for sound check. And then a little while later, they came back out. He had a nice cowboy shirt on and ready to go. And that night, they played so late that all of the workers at Red Rocks left. And it was just us and the band <laughs> past midnight at Red Rocks. Oh, okay. Kind of nice. Parents go to sleep. You get to stay up and play. So should we uh, t- talk about what's happening in the world of cannabis this week? Anything exciting that uh, you've been hearing about, Larry? You know, i got to tell you, I've been on the move so much that uh, there hasn't been a lot to focus on, except there's more lawsuits being filed in Illinois, so the licenses that they just issued have all been put on hold uh, while we go into, I think it's now round three. <laughs> of course. Wow. Larry, without mentioning names, does that affect our mutual client? Um, it does only in the sense that it, it, it could just, even if they don't are directly affected, the impact it could have on the rest of the industry will ripple through, I think, to everybody else. You know, if there's if there's not dispensaries up and running to service the products that are being grown and manufactured, you know, what good does it do? So it, it's just a perpetual state of litigation here, uh, wildly frustrating, and um, I don't know what to tell anybody anymore. Well, for our fans at home to let them know that Larry and I actually do some social equity work in Illinois. Correct. We have a, a group there that Jim and I are working with, and uh, that's the unfortunate part about it. You know, it doesn't matter who your group is, and even if you're working with a, uh, you know, a legitimate social equity group, uh, as opposed to one of the many manufactured ones that have been used around here, um, you know, you still get caught up in the same net, if you will, that uh, is slowing everybody else down while these new cases come in and make their way through the court system. But we're going on a year and a half. Uh, without any of these licenses, uh, you know, really being officially issued, uh, finally issued, and and people being able to come online, and it, it, it's just a shame for the market as a whole. It keeps prices higher than they need to be. It limits uh, availability and selection, and um, it, it's not the way that the market was originally intended, and it, it's disappointing. It also makes the powerful groups in Illinois that much more powerful, and it allows them to spend their money into other markets and be more powerful than guys in other non-competitive markets. So it's, uh, in many ways, an unfair advantage that's being given to the oligopoly that still exists in the state of Illinois. Well, that's true, and I, I, you know, I try to take a, a uh, even-handed and smiley face approach when we talk about the Illinois industry, but I, I don't think that that can be ignored. Um, I, I certainly believe on one level or another that the... Uh, the group of the original medical owners who now, as you say, uh, the ones that have formed into multi-state operators and are really controlling Illinois and a lot of the other parts of the country are starting to wield their political influence a little bit. And, um, you know, it doesn't take much in Illinois to slow things down already. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm sure that some well-placed lobbyists can probably slow things down a little bit more. And why not? Uh, you know, that's a very small group of guys. And last year they divided up $1.2 billion dollars. Uh, you know, this year is expected to be maybe twice that much. So, um, you know, it would, I, I think that we all agree that the market would be a much better place for the consumer if we could get these other licenses issued and these stores up and running. But unfortunately, the, the, not everyone in the powers that be see it that way. Well, which brings us to another subject that Rob wanted to kick around. Um, it perpetuates the illicit market, right, Larry? It does perpetuate the illicit market, Jim. You know, these prices are higher than they have to be because these people have no competition. So they're not willing to bring their price down. The state isn't yielding on its tax. And, you know, you wind up paying sometimes double, if not more, uh, you know, what the street price would be for some of these products. They're already paying significantly more than the patients pay at the medical dispensaries. Um, but, you know, 
for anyone who has a connection or a guy or somebody who knows somebody in California or Oregon or wherever uh, who can get regular access to product from there, it's going to be tremendously better in quality and it's going to be significantly less expensive. And that's killing our market. Sure. Yeah. Rob, what do you see going on in California? Yeah, man, you're getting all sorts of uh, reports about these massive busts that are happening. There was especially, you know, a lot of attention paid recently to the one that happened in the Antelope Valley outside of Lancaster in the Palm Desert, which, you know, they claim netted almost a billion dollars worth of cannabis. Um, you know, obviously that's always inflated the street prices, so I always take it with a grain of salt when they talk about how big the bust was or what the value of the bust was. But the fact of the matter is, you know, there's still no shortage of illicit cannabis being grown in the state of California. And, you know, some of it stays here, but a lot of it still goes out of state. And the problem that I'm seeing out here, and we've been seeing now for a while, is because, A, California's restrictions on prosecuting illicit cannabis are, are so um, loose at this point, which, I mean, I'll tell you, for years and years and years, I was such a big supporter of decriminalizing and trying to make sure the penalties for, you know, cannabis uh, possession were really, really minimal. But now that you can actually be a legal operator and you can actually participate in a legal market, and, and now you're basically encouraging illicit activity and saying, okay, we're not really going to punish you if you guys actually go in and, and do something that's against the market we've created for you on the legal side. I start to feel a little bit differently going, you know, if you guys can't get together and, and be a legal operator, then you should have some sort of punish, punishment attached to it. So what you're seeing is there's no motivation for people not to be uh, on the illicit side. And when they do get popped, oftentimes the law enforcement agencies that are popping them have no idea whether or not these guys are legal or illegal, and they're reticent to actually even go in there and do their jobs because they can't tell whether or not you know the, these guys are going to have an, a cause of action against the police department or against the city. So, you know, you see a bus like the one we just saw, and you think, okay, that's got to make a major dent in the illicit activity in California. And the fact of the matter is, it doesn't even like come close to scratching it. So, you know, they put they put the uh, the value of the illicit activity just in California as far as domestic sales in the state of California at eight billion dollars last year versus four billion dollars on the legal market. So, if you think you know California is a twelve billion dollar total market. Two-thirds of it was still on the illicit side. But that doesn't even, it pales in comparison to how much that cannabis, you know, is being shipped out of state and how much, you know, that accounts for, let's say, Chicago's illicit industry. So, you know, if Illinois' industry is, you know, pushing $2 billion this year in the legal market, it's probably pushing 6 or 7 in the illicit. But the vast majority of that's not grown in, in Illinois. It's grown in California. It's grown in Oregon and Washington, but primarily California. So you have to think that, you know, California's illicit, like, exported, you know, part of this industry is probably pushing $35, $40 billion a year right now. And, and there's very little that's being done to, uh, to stop that because there's really no penalty to uh, prevent it. So hard to say, you know, someone that's fought so hard to see um, changes in cannabis law over the last 30 years, it, it's hard for me to say that I disagree with, you know, walking it back and seeing these people get incarcerated. But at the same time, I just don't think it's fair to the legal growers and everyone else in, in all these other states that are fighting hard to, uh, to, to play this game correctly uh, to watch someone else take their market share. And Rob, I'll chime in, but I think it's not just cultivation in California that the brazenly open retail establishments totally unlicensed. To an extent, Jim. I mean, that, that's that's definitely been curbed quite a bit in the last couple of years um, since the enactment of, you know, kind of consolidating all the laws in 2018 and really implementing them in the beginning of 2020. Uh, we've seen most of what, you know, the quote trap shops get shut down. So they still exist, but they're not nearly as um, as obvious or brazen as they were previously. It's much more the uh, the delivery services that are a lot harder to catch. But even those have been pulled off all the different platforms like Weed Maps and some of the other um, platforms that you know used to feature those guys. Now it's um, you know if you know a delivery guy, you know great. But it's not nearly as easy as it used to be, where you'd walk in and you couldn't you know differentiate between legal and illegal. Uh, I'd like to think that you know it won't be long, maybe three or four more years, and uh, we'll have um, 
an industry, maybe a little longer, have an industry where you know, it truly is just the legal side of the industry that's running this, and hopefully there'll be room for everyone, social equity, mom and pop, and big business. And if there is, you know, I'll be delighted. But what we have right now is still um, too hard to, uh, to categorize because, as Larry nailed it, as long as you keep pricing artificially high, you will always have an illicit market. So, you know, I, I, anyone out there that has any influence in local or state government, all I can say is, you know, don't overtax your industry because all you're doing is keeping the industry you don't want alive and well. Yes, an intelligent remark I heard is it should be like the, the liquor industry where the federal taxation uh, is almost invisible. You don't even notice it when you buy a bottle or a six-pack, and that's how cannabis should be. Well, it, it's going to have to be. You know, alcohol found out that that's what it took to survive, and legal marijuana will find out the same thing over time. Well, the three of us are all working hard in that direction. Uh, you know, 2030, I would love to see a 100% national legal cannabis market. You've heard me say before... My estimation is when you take illicit plus legal, it's a $100 billion a year industry. And I think Rob's on track with his numbers. It's 25%, maybe 30% legal market right now, nationally. Yeah. So to that end, you know, I was actually really encouraged when I saw uh, Chuck Schumer tweet out today that uh, you know, he's gotten um, a fair amount of pressure from, I believe, the, uh, it's a group of mayors. It's the members of the U.S. Conference of Mayors just actually had voted to call on President Biden to federally legalize cannabis, uh, expunge cannabis convictions, and allow for commercial sales under a model that promotes social equity. Uh, amazing that a lot of the largest cities in America kind of banded together to, to push this out. And more importantly, that um, our Senate Majority Leader has now tweeted it to the rest of the world saying, you know, hey, I, I believe in this as well, and this really stands with what you know, me and uh, Senator Wyden are trying to do right now in, in changing cannabis policy. And we, we've talked about the political side of this a thousand times, but the fact that we're now seeing it on a more of a localized level where you know states and um, municipalities across the country are calling on the feds to change their policy coming from some of the larger cities, I, I think that's a huge step in the right direction. Well, so do I, and I think that it's always been about um, the smaller communities, and, and I think we've seen that in a lot of places where the smaller communities will come in and sometimes they'll object to what the state is doing, sometimes they'll think the state isn't going far enough, and they're the ones who really experience either the positive or the negatives firsthand right away, right? The, 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 the facilities are in their community. That's where the business is taking place. That's where the sales tax is being generated. Hopefully, that's where there's not a lot of problems, uh, you know, popping up or anything like that. And I'm sure that a lot of these small communities are saying to the states, look, stay the hell out of this. This is good for us. A perfect example is South Dakota, right? South Dakota, they put it on the ballot. It passed by an overwhelming margin. And it's the governor who's sending her state attorney into court to challenge it, claiming that the ballot measure was unconstitutional under the South Dakota state law. You know, to me, that's ridiculous. Here's the people of this state who she gives lots of credit to for having the right kind of homespun values to fight off the coronavirus. But when it comes to marijuana, she questions all of their mentality and the fact that they would vote for it because it doesn't fit into her political well, view. Come on, you know, Christy Nome, you know exactly what she's going to say before she says it. You know, she's unbelievably predictable in whatever it is she's going to say to make sure that it, it fits with the narrative that she's trying to uh, project, specifically because I think she's got greater political ambition um, on, on sort of the far right side of the Republican Party. Yeah, I agree with that. But, you know, but it, it's just, you, you, we see situations like that. And we, we say, you know, I've heard Chuck Schumer talk about the fact that, it, you know, well, it may not be politically the right time to bring his bill to vote on the floor, that everything is so, you know, tooth and nail these days. They're all fighting for everything they can get and any legislative victory they can get. And I understand that process, and I, I think both parties can play that game equally well. 
but it's frustrating that anybody would be playing games with this right now and that everyone should just be willing to let it go forward and everyone should take credit for it on the right, on the left. They can all take credit for it that, you know, we're moving this industry forward. We're finally opening up banking. We're finally getting rid of 280E and we're not going to penalize people for being in an industry that's otherwise completely legal uh, and, and, and not harmful and uh, any of the other things that we're worried about. And it would be nice, you know, that just enough already. Let's just move forward with this. Because quite frankly, I think that once it's legalized, and I think once there's a federal plan for it, it's going to improve a lot of things in our life when we all don't have marijuana to kick and scream about anymore. You know that um, I always say that I'm an incrementalist. Like I, I strongly believe that for this to happen, it can't be these massive sweeping changes. It's got to be the you know little, you know, death by a thousand cuts of getting rid of prohibition. And uh, I think one of the things we saw come out this week that was interesting, or this last week, was the fact that in Canada, Circle K stores are now going to start selling CBD products which doesn't sound like a big deal. I mean, CBD is everywhere. It's in every bodega you can think of. But it's not in any major chains like a uh, 7-Eleven or, um, or, or a Circle K now. And to think that, you know, that's one of the two biggest convenience store chains in, in the North America that's now embracing CBD, that means that every single time anyone walks into one of those stores, it's going to be front and center that they see, you know, a cannabis-based product. That, to me, is, it's, it's still significant whether or not it you know, moves the needle at all. I think it's just anytime you can socialize acceptance of cannabis one little bit further, whether that changes one-tenth of a percent of people's minds, that, to me, is a major, major change. Normalization is the key. It's always been the key, I think. And it, it's still the thing that's holding this industry back because no matter what people say about it, there's always going to be a group of people out there who are going to tell us why it's bad, why it's, a, why it's wrong, why it's morally bad, why it can never be a part of our society. And we're not going to change their minds. We just have to change everybody else's minds so that these folks can, you know, howl into the wind all they want. And at the end of the day, you know, we just sit there and say, thanks, move out of the way, and our smoke won't hit you when it blows downstream. Um, but, you know, it, it, that's, that's where we are. We still have people yelling and screaming about alcohol, but now alcohol stores are open on Sunday. When I was growing up in St. Louis, nothing was open on Sunday. So, you know, little by little, I think we move towards a you know, more secular-based uh, decision-making process, but there's always going to be a little morality thrown in, and marijuana is always going to be a hot topic for people along the morality line. Yes, remember, we used to call them our Sunday beers. Yeah. Remember, you have to save your Sunday beers because the liquor stores were closed on Sunday. Right, 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 exactly. Well, I think that's a great segue to, uh, you know, kind of how we feel about the Grateful Dead as well, which is, again, normalization and, uh, you know, bringing people over one at a time. And there's times that you get, you know, people that swore they'd never, you know, get into jam bands of the Grateful Dead, and then you play them a tape or play them a show that would kind of change their minds. And once in a while, you, get, you would get sweeping change. You know, you get a piece of legislation in Canvas that really does change things. And once in a while, you get a show in, in the Grateful Dead world that, you know, anyone that wasn't sure whether or not they're a deadhead would hear a certain tape or, or see a certain show and it would completely and totally change their minds forever about how they felt about that band. And I think today's show that we're going to cover, which for me is, you know, a, a, no secret again, I'm probably the biggest 91887 fan you're ever going to meet. You know, I'm a huge MSG, uh, New York City uh, Grateful Dead fan as well. So when you put the two together and you think about, you know, the shows that really like changed kind of how I, you know, this is before I saw the Dead. And if there's anything that, you know, made me want to see them more than anything in the world was listening to this you know, show for the first time when I was a 15 year old. But uh, I'm guessing you guys are all familiarity with, uh, with, with 91887, is that right? That is true. And just to be sure, I went back and listened to it again when you were so kind enough to send us the link. Yep. 87 was a great year. It was. I think that was, uh, you know, for Jerry, it was post-diabetic uh, uh, coma. You know, he was back, and for a while there, I know that he was, yeah, I, I always laugh for a while, right? They sold the, the T-shirts, the Fat Man Rocks with Jerry 
little sketch of Jerry all kind of puffy in the Michael Jordan Jumpman pose. And then when we got to this point, it was the Fit Man Rocks, and they showed him a little more slimmed down. And the story was that Jerry was drinking carrot juice and wasn't smoking anymore and, you know, had cut out hard drugs and was really, you know, going to bring his game back around. And certainly for this period of time, the shows I saw in 1987 were all outstanding. And, you know, going back and listening to some of this music, it's, it, was, it was definitely a... Uh, uh, a, a big time for them and you know uh, unfortunately uh, uh, it didn't last for Jerry and uh, you know little did we know in 87 that the, you know the band was you know really just a few years away from you know kind of turning into uh, uh, the group that took us out of the home stretch which was always still fun and a great band but you know incrementally I think you know just always kind of lost something along the way but uh, there's very little argument that this 918-87 show is uh, is an outstanding show Rob, I know you like to always focus on the second set of it, and it is just a, an absolutely tremendous second set that just kind of seems to go on forever. What I like about it is, you know, at the end when they're doing the La Bamba and Jerry, you know, just breaks out into the chorus and he just is growling out that Spanish. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, he, he says it, he's singing it. And as you were talking about before, I, can't, I wasn't at the show, but I can also almost imagine Jerry up there with kind of like, you know, the rubbery knees bouncing back and forth at the microphone. Uh, as he's belting out that tune. Yeah, I, I think we actually even have a clip of the uh, the second verse of that La Bamba. If, uh, if Dan wants to cue that up for us, I think you might have that available. probably hear that goes right back into the good loving. So that, that La Bamba was sandwiched between a good loving on either side. So it was a good loving La Bamba, good loving. But just the fact that you're able to take that sort of good loving riff, transition into like pure Spanish uh, guitar, and just tear it apart like that. I mean, this is this is the height of like when Los Lobos was actually like a top 40 hit with La Bamba. Right. And, and right. We've, you know, first of all, it, I mean, Jerry, that music fits right in for him. Second of all, I just love the crowd reaction, right? When he's ripping out that verse, the crowd is going wild because... For those of us who knew and loved Jerry, there never really seemed to be a whole lot, at least by the time we got to seeing him, that ever really made to see him react. And whenever you would see that emotion or see that he was really, you know, given that extra effort on stage, you know, the, the, the deadheads picked up on it like nobody's business. And, you know, I mean, you forget in 87, you know, that was how big that song was and Richie Valens and all those guys were, were the, the focus of so much attention. And who was it? Um, Lou Diamond Phillips, right, who, who was in the movie with him and... You know, I mean, those were those were musical legends that I'm sure influenced Jerry and the boys. I mean, Good Love, Not Fade Away became a staple of theirs as if they had written it. And, um, you know, it's, it's great to hear him play that. It's great to hear him rip into it. It's great to hear the crowd recognize it and react. And uh, I just like it because, you know, there was just this kind of like awareness by them that this song was happening at the moment. 
It was like when they started playing for a while, I Fought the Law. I don't know if you remember that. But they had a period of time where they were singing I Fought the Law, and they had slowed it down so much that, you know, it took a little while to realize what they were doing. Or they also, one of the, the in the late 80s, were doing for a while Louie Louie, which, again, was like being done so slowly that you actually had to hear the chorus to appreciate what they were really singing. But, you know, the fact that these songs were out there and floating around and, you know, that they would pick up on it and play them from time to time, I thought was great, you know just showed Jerry's love of music, and if he heard a tune he liked, he wanted to play it. Yes, well, I have a few comments. Going back to the Labor Day weekend's fish show, and did all three nights with uh, my, our son Jack, who was on the show a few weeks ago, and during some absolutely blazing fish jams and Trey soaring guitar, he said, Dad, was, was it ever this good with the Grateful Dad and Jerry? And I said, you know, it was a different time, a different place, but yeah, the, the Grateful Dead had his moments, just like we are here when, you know, the music and the crowd and us and our, where we're at headwise, we're all on the same page. And we definitely had those moments with the Grateful Dead, as well as Fish Now. You know, look, another time is forgotten place, right? But yeah, um, the biggest, I mean, I, I've been to Fish shows and I've seen, you know, Fish shows where, where Trey really takes the crowd and the band and everybody to another level. But I was in... Um, Hampton Coliseum in uh, 1986 or 87. When was it when they broke out Box of Rain? 86. I'll just tell you that. There's just nothing, nothing can compare that. Maybe the St. Stephen in 83 at the Garden, but the playing, the moment when they just, or forget about that, you know, one night at Red Rocks when you're there and whatever, it doesn't matter what they're playing. And they, they had me on the moon with them. And it just, uh, I, I laugh when I hear that, not in a bad way, but because it, I know people who love Trey, like, wow, this is amazing. What else could there have ever been? And he's like, well, there was Jerry. Right. Well, having given that some thought, uh, I think some of the magic moments for me when the band and the music was really rocking to about the same level where Fish is now would be when they would roll out of the other one. And that thunder out of the other one. We're all on the same page. Oh, yeah. Any of those. You know, they would just have those moments for a while where, where everybody was hitting the right note at the right time. And you know, look, that's that's what we all do. You know, you go to 10 dead shows for that one show where they're off the charts. And the other ones, you say, these are great. You know, I'm having a good time anyway. But, you know, we're all, everyone's always searching for that, you know, that magic moment when it all comes together on stage and the dead were able to generate it often enough that, you know, they kept the fans coming back and back. Fish does it too, there's no question. Um, and I love watching it when Fish does. But some of those dead moments when, boy, they just had the entire place, you know, the, the, the whole Syracuse Carrier Dome moving as one. And it was a little bit amazing. That, you know, talk about a night when you fell in love with the Grateful Dead. For me, that was it, 1982, Syracuse Carrier Dome. I'm like, there can't be anything better than this in the world. I mean, you talk about, you know, seeing 10 to see that one. And then you talk about seeing 100 to see the, you know, the, the real one. And I think about, you know, 1987, I think about the after space, you know, part of it, as you said, like, yeah, I concentrate on the second set a lot more than I do on the first. And even like the pre-drums, where it's basically just a three-song three, three song pre-drums, the shakedown's awesome, the women are smarter, decent, the terrapin's decent, but then they come out of space, and they're on straight fire the rest of the time. You know, the, uh, the going down the road's amazing, the watchtower's one of the most blistering watchtowers that they've ever played, and then they drop into arguably the, gris, the greatest morning dew of all time. Like, I, 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 to this day, will say I think it's my favorite you know, morning dew, and I know there's a lot of like... 70s purists, I'll tell you, like 71, 72 dudes from like the Fillmore East are better, but you know, or or Cornell. But I, I think 1987. If you if you listen to the build up, and I think you know, again, we've got a clip of that as well. But uh, but the fact they come out of the do, I always think of the do as being like you know, normally a set closer, especially a Titanic do as a set closer, and then they come out of that and play a good loving La Bamba, good loving, 
afterwards, you know, the, the energy going all the way through that. I mean, they could have ended with the dude walked away and everyone would have been like, that was one of the best shows I've ever seen with just four songs out of space. And that's always the beauty of that, that Syracuse show that I was talking about. They came out of space and they wound up throwing two or three extra tunes in and they just kept going and going and going. And those are, those are the nights because if they're throwing those extra tunes in, my feeling is they're having a good time, right? They know they could walk off the stage after the do and everybody would be fine. But they decide, we're having too much fun. We want to stay up there for another 10 or 15 minutes and really rock everybody out. You know, God love them. They, they do it. And, uh, you know, that's the beauty of all of these tunes. On any given night, they could play Morning Dew. And if Jerry was into it for the moment, it could automatically become, you know, a top five do. And it's just, it, those are the kind of tunes that could do that. And, and even before the space, you're right, look, three songs in and out. But if you're going to have three songs in and out, Shake Down Street, Women Are Smarter, and Terrapin are not three bad songs to have. Yeah, I agree. Whether it's Fish or the Grateful Dead, we're so lucky to have this. Very small part of the human race gets to experience what we experience. Hey, uh, hey Dan, do you have a clip of that uh, Morning Dukes? I'd love to hear a little part of that as well if we can. Where have If it's not, you know, it, it, look, it's all subjective. You know, whatever one's people's favorites, whatever one isn't. But you certainly know when one's a great one. And uh, that is definitely, without a doubt, one of the great ones. I would say that when you can hear the entire crowd roaring, that shifts it into the category of objective. Yeah. And when, when you think that it was also when, you know, Brent Midland was uh, laying into the keyboards like he was, you know, into that, just to fire up Garcia as he goes into it. Like, any, anytime you can get Garcia growling and barking, um, which is rare, you know. You, you got a bit more of it. You know, towards the uh, towards the end, you were getting it in so many roads and on "Standing on the Moon" and a couple other tunes. But you know, I, I'd still say that for any purist, a, uh, an amazing morning do. You know, was kind of the uh, the pinnacle of all of it. It's 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 it was Jerry's signature tune, and when he was on and playing it great, it it could save a show, it could make a show, it could do anything, and that's that's just a great example of it and again right you can hear the crowd roaring it's appreciation for this guy you know they've all most of those people have heard this tune numerous times and it doesn't matter though because each time it was a little bit different each time it was a little bit special if Jerry was really into it then it would really be a lot special and it would just uh, just be too great but you know what's what's you know we we talk about how timeless it is and I know Jim you've talked about your sons and, and all of that and you know, I'm down in uh, Atlanta two weekends ago for my son's wedding, and again, I'm hooked up with these group of guys that uh, he went to school with, who I got to spend a bachelor party with up in uh, Wisconsin a month or two before, and that's all they want to do. They want to sit around. They want to talk about fish. They want to talk about the Grateful Dead. Oh, fish one night teased, let it grow. Everybody was ecstatic. Fish had teased, let it grow. And I was like, okay, there you go. Let it grow is a great tune. If, you know, 
Trey was ever going to break into anything, that would be it. But we talked about that. And then when I gave my toast, I worked in probably about 17 or 18 different dead and fish lyrics throughout the toast, uh, telling the guys that I was going to do that. And then I made them all turn in a score sheet to see who had picked up the most references along the way. Uh, wound up having to give them a color-coded key so they could go back and make sure they got them all. Most of them didn't. Uh, they, they found all the fish ones. Some of the dead ones might have been a little too obscure for them. But, uh, you know, hopefully my goal is that now they will know them and next time they'll be right on it. There we go. Convert one at a time. Incrementalism, Larry. Now, at that wedding that you were at in the toast, did they uh, make any reference to the fish song Waste? No, did not. I came right out of the box. I was making a reference to how many years it had been in our family since a Michigan girl had been born because now we were going to have a Michigan girl by marriage. And so I said, 80 years. It would be a real grind to convert that to seconds. So I, you know, figured that I would just start off right off the bat trying to, you know, dive in and capture a little bit of that uh, fish magic. The one time we heard grind, and it took me a while to understand that that's what they were doing, basically, right? Counting the seconds that they've each been alive in their acapella fashion. But I even worked in the Boston cream donut that uh, the fiance, my, my son's feeling for the fiance was more than a feeling. She was the sunshine of his love. And it's been such a long time that we've been waiting for them to get married. So you take that Boston cream, baby, you shove it together. And I figured anyone who got that was the automatic winner. <laughs> a little Baker's Dozen reference, huh? Absolutely. These guys are up for that. They know about it better than I do. Nice. They nice, do. nice. So it's always all a lot of fun. And uh, even down in a beautiful place like Georgia, where it's, it's, it's absolutely not legal on any level whatsoever, we were uh, driving out to the resort where the wedding was at. We had to stop to get gas, and, you know, you pull off, and we're outside of Atlanta proper now, and we're in a little rural community, and what looks like a little shell or Circle K or something with a little mini mart, and I ran in to grab a bottle of water and opened the door and walked into what must have been the largest collection of glass I've ever seen in my life. Rows and rows of cases with every kind of glass you can imagine. And when I found the... Uh, the Rick and Morty-themed bong, I knew we were ready for the weekend, so it all went down well. Well, very good. Anything else for today, gentlemen? I think we should at least talk about the fact that next week we've got the one and only David Gans joining us. Uh, oh, yes. So I think we're all pretty fired up about that, and uh, hopefully our audience will be as well. It's, uh, most of us spend our time listening to SiriusXM, you know, listening to uh, David interviewing other people or listening to their stories about life you know, on the road of the Grateful Dead. But we get the unique pleasure next week of asking him about his experiences, um, you know, from an outsider's perspective looking in. So I, I, for one, am really, really excited about this interview. Well, I have to tell you, Rob, uh, you know, Jim and I have been doing this for a long time. Uh, we've had a lot of great shows. And now with you, we've had a number of great shows, great guests, a lot of great guests recently. But for any of our fans who are really interested in, in knowing a little bit more about the inside story and the way things really go with the Grateful Dead and and what it's like for someone who's been uh, you know, part of the family for an extended period of time. Next week's show, you do not want to miss. David has been very, very gracious, both in terms of giving us his time and uh, you know, kind of vetting out with us the issues that he's willing to talk about. You know, I, I think the biggest problem we're going to have is how do we reasonably confine this to a period of time that people are, are actually willing to sit and commit to, because I'm sure we could talk with this guy for three or four hours without batting an eye. I can tell you it's just been uh, uh, a lot of fun, Larry, with you and I just getting to go back and forth with them by email to kind of talk about prepping for the show next week. So uh, even that, where I'm like, oh, boy, this is fun, you know, back and forth with David Gans on a, on a handful of things. So I'm really excited. I uh, hope everyone joins us. But until then, uh, Rob Hunt signing off, and we'll see you guys next week. Very good. J Jim Marty heading out to see Phil and friends tomorrow. 
And Larry Mishkin saying, have a great time at that show. I'll be reporting on Den Company from Wrigley Field. Gamarcha Timat Tova to those that it mean anything to. Uh, have a great week. Stay safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on PodConX. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out.